0: Our Father, my prayer is simple today. This is a very familiar passage of Scripture that many of us may have put into that file cabinet drawer of things we know or things we memorize as a child. But Father, you have impressed upon me. And I pray that I'll be able to convey that to this body here of the importance and the The utmost urgency expressed in this passage, I pray for clarity in my speech and in my thoughts in the presentation of the truth of this word. I pray for openness of hearts and minds, for even though some of us may have memorized these verses long ago, no doubt there are some here, no doubt there are some here who have allowed that to diminish, the truth of that to diminish the meaning of these verses to diminish. For some here, perhaps, Father, who have disregarded the urgency of this text, I pray for openness of our hearts and our minds. I pray that you would give us focus and attention as you give me power to speak, that uh, your truth would be manifested here today. I pray that you would break down barriers in our life, that would keep us from hearing the truth, whether it be pride or indifference or familiarity. I just pray that you would give us a willingness to hear and to respond to the truth of this passage. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. America, love it or leave it. I had to do my southern accent. You're either with us or you're against us. So these are examples of logical fallacies, logical inaccuracies called false dichotomies. So let's put this slide up that I hope is there. This word does not mean, as I may have thought once upon a time, the study of ditches. This is not the study of how to dig ditches. This is dichotomy. Now, I I learned this word maybe five or six years ago, and I like to say it. So um, dichotomy, it just means a, it, it's a statement of seeming logic that is actually meant to trap the listener into making one of two choices when there's actually other choices or positions to take. I think it's Greek or Latin, maybe Greek. Dico meaning to, and otomy meaning um, to cut, like lobotomy, uh, um, you know to cut so to cut something into two i couldn 't think of another otomy word, so dichotomy is to cut something into two, maybe something that should not have been meant to be cut into only two, but false dichotomies i don 't have to be with you or against you, I may not know you, I may be indifferent to what you believe. Um, the with me or against me statement is a very old old saying um, uh, Jesus himself said it. And he had a right to say it in the context of the verse where he says, you're with me or against me. President George W. Bush said it after 9-11, um, uh, that nations were either with America or against America. Hillary Clinton, our Secretary of State, has has made this statement before. Um, governments frequently express this during conflicts. Well, so they'll say, you as a country, you're either with me or against me. Um, in the movies, Dirty Harry said it. Uh, Morpheus in The Matrix told Neo this, like you're either with me or against me. Darth Vader in Episode 3, when he became Darth Vader, he said it. And Obi-Wan replied, only a Sith deals in absolutes. A few people will appreciate that. but But it's a false statement. Typically, it's a false statement. You see, I can agree with you on some things and I can disagree with you on others without being for you or against you. The, the opening statement, America, love it or leave it. I can also appreciate the gift of living in America without loving everything about America. And I can, I can stay here, thankfully, you know, by God's gift of grace to this country. I can stay here without leaving it. Politics, as we're about to find out, politics, politics seem to bring out the most common false dichotomies. It is just simpler in a soundbite commercial-driven culture to distill things down to two quick choices. Twitter and Facebook can feed this cultural tragedy of oversimplification. Maybe the intent is to manipulate the listener into voting a certain way or or feeling a certain way. Maybe it's just intellectual laziness. But uh, last week, a friend of mine put as their Facebook status, none of you know him. He's uh, not from here, so stop thinking. A A friend of mine put as their Facebook status, the choice is clear. You either believe in big government, no, you either believe big government is the problem or big government is the solution. Now go vote. Well, there's other things to consider. There are other issues to consider. There are things like foreign policy, abortion, colonialism, character, business philosophies, welfare, the amount of taxes that one might personally pay, the amount of welfare money one might personally receive, involvement in war, alliances with other countries, the perceived intelligence of a candidate. Matt, did I leave anything out? No. He he wasn't the one that said it. It's not just about big government or small government, but my friend was just obviously leading me to the position that big government is the problem. There are also scientific or non-scientific false dichotomies. Light is either made up of particles or it can be treated as a wave. That's a shout-out to physics majors. Josh, what's the answer to that? (laughs) <laughs> True. It's both. There's particles in a wave. There are many, to our shame, there are many false dichotomies stated in evangelical Christian circles. I remember reading a tweet that said, if you're not ministering to the poor, if you're not ministering to the poor, you might as well call yourself a Mormon. There's multiple points of inaccuracy in this statement. I'm sure the person's intent was right to, like, encourage people to minister to the poor. But for one, playing the Mormon card, like, if you don't do this, then you're a Mormon, so you better do it. It's a clumsy attempt to guilt a person into helping the poor. Well, I don't want to be one of those Mormons, so I'm going to go help the poor. How long is that motivation going to last? How biblical is that? A common theme in evangelical false dichotomies would be if you don't blank, I don't see how you can call yourself a Christian. I don't see how you can call yourself a Christian if you blank. If you don't homeschool, I don't see how you can call yourself a Christian. If you do homeschool, I don't see how you call yourself a Christian. Honestly, yesterday as I'm studying, I came across a blog. I was not Googling for this, but this blog said, if I am truly committed to living a missional life, then I must enroll my kids in the public school. False dichotomy. If you eat meat, I don't see how you can call yourself a Christian. If you don't eat meat or bacon, I don't see how you can call yourself a Christian. I don't see how you can call yourself a Christian and cheer for Nike University in Eugene. I just don't. Or other schools. <laughs> Stay here, Steve. These things ought not to be. I present them because just to see how common they are. Um, These things ought not to be. There's a real danger in using false dichotomies in order to manipulate behavior or to make intellectual points or political points. We should be better than that. We should be more intellectually precise and honest. We should not be intellectual bullies. Pastors and elders, speaking to myself, we should not be pastoral intimidators and try to manipulate behavior through words. But let me also say... There's a danger in saying that not only are there more than two choices, there's a danger in saying there's never a single right choice. You see, there's the false dichotomy, but then there's also the there is no truth. Truth is only what your culture or your society or your tribe defines. Maybe you've noticed at the same time in part of our culture, like politics, we have everything boils down to these two choices choices. Um, We've polarized our our parties or people become very polarized on issues. At the same time that our culture does that, we've also inexplicably placed a very high value on tolerance, tolerance for all things, acceptance of all views. According to my best friend Wikipedia, postmodernism, which some people describe as our intellectual era, postmodernism postulates that many if not all realities, are only social constructs and are therefore subject to change. Postmodernism claims that there is no absolute truth and that the way people perceive the world is subjective and emphasizes the role of language, power, relations, and motivations in the formation of our ideas and beliefs. Don't we see this in our culture? And don't we see This encouraged in our parenting philosophies, our educational philosophies, that there's there's no real wrong way to do anything. There's no real right way. Uh, There's only alternative ways to achieve a goal or maybe not achieve the goal. The, The point is in the effort. There's a real danger in perverting truth through false dichotomies. There's a real danger in viewing the world with the belief that there is no truth at all. As I said, this is counterintuitive. We have a world that values both of these. We misshape truth to manipulate. We avoid truth that defines. But here, here in God's word in Matthew 7 and Matthew 5 and 6, in in this message preached by God's Son in the Sermon on the Mount, we have seen much countercultural teaching. We see countercultural teaching, though, that is applicable while it runs counter to our 21st century culture. So let's turn to Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. Just two verses today that we'll start from. We'll refer to some others. Matthew 7, verse 13 and 14. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Matthew seven thirteen and fourteen. We're coming to the end of the Sermon on the Mount, and Jesus presents us here with a salvo of dichotomies. Of only difference is that Jesus dichotomies are real; they're valid, they're truthful, and they're loving. He's actually stating two choices. Today we'll look at these two ways. Next week there's two types of prophets. There's two house foundations. The call to discipleship culminates here with a hard and inescapable choice. This is a very real dilemma. This is a true dichotomy. There's no falseness or ambiguity here. This is not a social construct that we've come up with. This is not a scenario that is subject to change and redefinition. Here, Jesus is calling us to focus on his crystal clear call to action. After talking for two whole chapters about life as a disciple, life in the kingdom, Jesus does not sit back and just say, man, I hope they figure out what to do next. Jesus is saying, enter. Jesus is calling for action. This is an imperative. This is a command. Enter by the narrow gate. We should note this is not a universal command. Jesus is not saying, I command that all the world should enter into the narrow gate. But he is exhorting us to action. This is a call to action. This is a strong plea to come and enter into the narrow gate. So let's look at this. What is this entrance to? To what does this narrow gate lead? In the context that we see in the Sermon on the Mount, we can accurately associate this gate with salvation and entrance into the kingdom. Jesus has been describing the life in the kingdom uh, he's mentioned earlier in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew five twenty, for I tell you, in Matthew five twenty, for I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. In this context, he's setting the standard very high, and he's saying that the desirable goal is to enter into the kingdom. In a more sobering context, later on in this chapter that we're in, Matthew seven twenty one, Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my father who is in heaven There will be those at the end of their life or at the end of time who become who have become self-deceived There are now people who believe that they know God But they truly do not and later on in the message. We'll look at two groups of people in our in uh, in our outline But we can see that here for one group Their failure to know God truly and their failure to do his will disqualifies them from entrance into the kingdom. Later in Matthew, Jesus also refers to entering into the kingdom. And I just chose a few because it's all through the Gospels. Jesus denounces those who would prevent others from entering the kingdom. In Matthew 23, 13, he says, But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, for, for you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Matthew 23, 13. So it's a very valid, it's a very common analogy that Christ often uses in his teaching of entering into the kingdom. Entering into the kingdom means being saved from the penalty of sin and being reconciled to God. So how does a person enter into the kingdom, submitting himself to the glorious service of King Jesus with all the rights and privileges of an adopted child of the king? We will see that Jesus simply and comprehensively states that the entrance of the kingdom is through himself. He is the door. He is the gate. So this is a simple message before us. There are three main outline points. The first outline point has four sub points, but the other ones are not that long. So three main outline points. First one is there's two gate ways, two gates and ways. Number two, there are two groups. And number three, there are two destinations. If you're As meticulous about your note-taking, you want to leave space between one and two. So two gateways, two groups, and two destinations. This is truth before us. This is the divine truth, but more importantly, most importantly, this is truth that must be dealt with. These are real dichotomies. So first of all, two gateways. Our first consideration is that there are two gates before every man. There is a narrow gate and there is a wide gate. Now, what, what characterizes these gates? But Before I go further, let me just do a short parenthetical. Let's not get too confused with the metaphors that Jesus is using. You might be asking yourself, now, do I go through the gate to get onto the way? In that case, the gate is salvation and the path is the Christian life. Or does the path come first and lead to the gate and therefore Maybe the gate is the end of my life, and I'm passing through to the kingdom. There are good theologians who have discussed this topic in detail and written commentaries and people buy commentaries, and and they take multiple interpretations. But for us today, I would ask us to just consider, don't overanalyze scriptural metaphors too much. Don't overapply an analogy. For, For example, Jesus calls elders to be shepherds under shepherds of the flock. But that does not mean we make all of us sleep in a corral or a sheepfold like shepherds and sheep. Um, That would be uncomfortable and awkward. But so that's an over application here. There is definitely we can view that the gate and the way go together. There's a narrow gate and a difficult way. There's a wide gate and an easy way. So I just kind of put them together as gateways. So the, the four points under this this first main point. Answer the question, why is this first gateway called narrow and hard? Why is this first way called narrow and difficult? Four reasons to consider. The way is narrow and difficult because, one, there is only one way to salvation. Two, we must enter one at a time. Three, we must enter by no other means. And four, the way is narrow and difficult because truth defines Because truth defines and restricts. And we'll go through each of these. So first, considering why is the way called narrow and hard? Number one, because there is only one way to salvation. Very clearly, Jesus says in John chapter 14, verse 6, John 14, 6, Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one. No one comes to the Father except through me. In John chapter 10, Jesus elaborates further in verse 7. So Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. There is only one gateway to salvation. And that is through Jesus. This simple truth should not be overlooked. It is the foundation of our faith. If there are any other ways by which we can be reconciled to God, then our faith is in a changing, vacillating, shaky untruth. It is popular today, or maybe it has been for centuries, but it's popular today to say there are many ways to God. Quote, many roads lead to God is often uttered even by some churches I found this in a doctrinal statement for a church that is self-described as a progressive reconciling church. A quote, their doctrinal statement, We are accepting of the fact that many roads lead to God, so we are respectful of all spiritual paths. I'm not saying we should be disrespectful as we present the gospel. But we cannot say all roads lead to God because Jesus himself says there's only one way, one path. It may be considered in our culture today to be arrogant to say that Jesus is the only way to God. Now, many Christians can respond, respond unkindly, especially if we don't really care about the souls of men. Many Christians can inappropriately say, Jesus said it, so if you have a problem with that, take it up with him. That's just so wrong. But perhaps a better approach is to note that the only way that this religious pluralism, you know, plural roads, multiple roads to God, the only way that approach can be true is if the God at the end of the road had never revealed himself, had never said anything about himself. But we know that God did reveal himself. There is revelation. There is God's word. His words define who he is and his words define how we must come to him. So Jesus states for your consideration today, I am the way Jesus is the narrow gate Jesus is the hard way to life and that is truth that must be considered and responded to today number two why is the road narrow and hard number two because we must enter one at a time Understand that the truth of the gospel message must be dealt with on an individual basis. So consider, if you will, the image of a turnstile. If you go into Oaks Park or to the Rose Garden, it might require passing through a narrow turnstile. Actually, I think they're getting more high tech and they're scanning the thing. But, you know, old timey thing, you had the metal thing, the, the three arm thing that rotated. And if you had a bag, it kind of got caught on it. And it's all embarrassing and stuff. But it's meant to count people as they go through and also to restrict the people to go through one at a time. The image of a narrow gate should remind us that each of us must come to Christ for salvation one at a time. We cannot, as much as we, might, we parents might wish it, we cannot pass through as a family. There is no household salvation when one considers the overall teaching of Scripture. Later in Matthew, Jesus refers to... Um, the fact that salvation, becoming a follower of Christ, becoming a disciple of Christ will divide families. 1 Corinthians, uh, the Apostle Paul speaks of marriages where one spouse believes and another spouse does not. So we know from these verses and from scriptural teaching that salvation is by individual faith in Christ. It is not something that a parent can do for a child. It is not something that a brother can do for a sister. I mean, to be sure and thankfully... Wonderfully, salvation of an individual can lead to glorious conversion of a family, an extended family, as God uses the witness and testimony of that changed person, that life, to adorn the gospel so that the unbeliever, the non-Christian, sees their need for salvation. But here, the text refers to a narrow gate, and we must enter through that narrow gate and enter into that hard way one at a time. The truth of the gospel must be dealt with on an individual basis. So Jesus is the only way to salvation. We must enter into this gate one at a time. And thirdly, we must enter by no other means, by no other means. This narrow turnstile analogy should also remind us that we cannot come to salvation except through Jesus Christ and his atoning work on the cross on our behalf. It is salvation by no one else. Acts 4.12, the apostles preached, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved, only Jesus Christ. Here's the thing. We must come to Christ without any other pretense or hope. It's one of those unique things when you add something to it, it, messes, it, it, it doesn't work anymore. It negates it. We can't say, I'm trusting in Jesus and in Buddha. Yeah, I got my bases covered. You know, I'm trusting in Jesus and Buddha, and we're moving along, and and at the end of the time, I'm not sure which one's right, but at least I bought both insurance policies. No, you've got to come through this gate by no other means. Salvation does not come by earning God's favor so he will forgive us of our sin. Salvation does not come because we deserve salvation. There's a word that you may hear around here occasionally, the word monergistic, monergism. Monergistic literally means one work. We say salvation is monergistic because we believe it is the work of God in salvation, not God and man teaming up and coming up with salvation of man's soul. Theologically, we frequently refer to monergism as the doctrine that God, through the Holy Spirit, is the only agent in regeneration. That the human will possesses no inclination to holiness until regenerated. It means that the very desire for faith by which we believe in him who justifies the ungodly, this very faith comes to us through regeneration. God alone does the saving work for us. Now, this is a very important truth for us to apprehend, not only for the point of regeneration where God saves us, but also as we continue to walk with God while we still live here on the earth. This extra baggage, this extra thing that we might add to our salvation can affect the way we live. So much practiced religion, formal religion, can manifest itself as legalistic morality if we choose to forget that we didn't save ourselves. Yes, we are called to holiness. Yes, we are called to holiness as God sanctifies our lives, but we so often pervert that truth by acting as if God will show us more favor if we do enough good. If we treat people well enough, if we read our Bibles, if we pray enough, then good things will happen to us. No. To further flip around this perversion of truth to yet another inaccurate uh, version of truth, we can also feel that any bad thing that happens to us is because we somehow sinned or let God down. If I get sick, then God's trying must be trying to get my attention. I read this week of a man who gave testimony to his church. He came into his church, true story, came into his church and the side of his face was blistered and red as if he'd been burned. He told the church that as he was driving, his car overheated. And so he pulled over, stopped. He did not wait long enough to re- uh, let the engine cool off. He took the radiator to cap off. It spewed and burned his face. He told the church that God was judging him because he missed church that Wednesday night and because he did not go on door-to-door evangelism that week. I'm not saying it's wrong to attend church. I'm not saying it's wrong to do formal evangelism as a group of believers. But God's not looking for an excuse to smack us down when we miss some point on a man-created list of what Christians do. How twisted and deceitful our hearts can be. On the one extreme, there may be some of us here who are, are hearing what I'm saying and saying, yep, I don't need to pursue holiness at all. Because I'm saved, I'm taken care of, I got my insurance policy, I do what I want. Dear brother or sister, without fruit in your life and without the evidence of regeneration, perhaps you are on the wrong path as we shall see. Perhaps you are deceived and perhaps God will say to you, I never knew you. Yet others on the other extreme may be struggling with condemnation with every cold, divine disapproval with every disease, reproach with every rash, Accusation with every accident. May God free you from this condemnation. He has already freed you from his condemnation. Just like the one who would seek to enter through the narrow gate while holding the suitcases of self-righteousness. There's matching bags called self-condemnation. Jesus says no. No carry-ons. Enter here through this gate, but you enter unencumbered. You enter alone You enter by no other means of salvation. So fourthly, we call this gate narrow. We call this way difficult because truth defines and restricts. Christ has spent this sermon defining kingdom life and the lifestyle of a disciple. And the teaching of truth defines boundaries by the very nature of truth. There are truths and doctrines in the Bible that must be believed. The call to a disciple is a call to holiness. The process of sanctification is also defined as becoming more like Jesus, being shaped into his image. His image, the template, the character of God is our template and the pattern for how our character should be shaped. This template defines, for example, we must be faithful to our word because God is faithful. God forgives, therefore we must forgive. These are restrictions on a disciple's life. Truth defines, and that is difficult. Disciples cannot ignore truth. The narrow, hard gate is this way because this gate requires self-denial. This gate requires confession of sin and repentance for sin. This way may call for suffering and tribulation for believers. In Acts, we, we see the early church teaching in this regard in acts 14:21 and 22 when they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples they returned to lystra and to iconium and to antioch strengthening the souls of the disciples encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of god suffering is part of the way You may be hearing the voice of Satan, the deceiver in your ear. If you go that narrow way, it's going to be hard. You have to deny yourself things. You have to repent of your sins. You're going to be miserable. Jesus says, yes, it is hard. Yes, my way is difficult. It is going to be hard to look into your life and see and recognize and understand the blackness of your heart, the sin inside you. The sin inside you that makes you worthy of condemnation and judgment. But is, is it good? Is this way hard but good? Yes, dealing with our sin, dealing with our problems and seeing God overcome them and free us from the guilt of that sin, that is sweet. Our lives may be marked by pain and suffering, but there is eternal joy and peace. There is joy and peace in knowing of our future and living in the good of that now. The last time I spoke, I mentioned as an illustration of the good and bad of receiving a cancer diagnosis. Isn't it bad to get bad news? Yeah, absolutely. Isn't it good that God can use medical technology, painful chemotherapy, painful surgery, or God can heal and allow cancer to be removed from a body if he wills? Yes. The narrow gate is hard, but it is good because it leads to life. Now, the broad gate leads to an easy way. It's an open gate. It's an open way that says all roads lead to God. It's a it's a blinking neon enter here sign that tells you if you live well and treat people well, God's a loving God and inevitably he's just going to forgive everybody. The Broadway is full of half truths. God is love, but the Broadway doesn't tell you God is holy and must judge sin or he's not he's not just. He's not good. God says that you must deal with your sin, while the easy way says you don't have to change anything or deny yourself anything. It's easy not to have any boundaries or rules. Live life by your own rules. It may seem right, but Proverbs 16.25 says, There's a way that seems right to a man, but the end is the way to death. The broad way also offers cheap grace. Cheap grace. There's a, this is a grace that is falsely preached. That requires no repentance for sin. Now I say to you today, this is a grace that is not worth having. Consider something like physical fitness. Um, working out, running, exercising is something that can bring earthly joy. Because if it's something that we work for and we see re- results, we, we gain a sense of achievement. We gain more health. Uh, no pain, no gain. You know, that, that sort of statement. We value fitness more. We value exercise more. And wonderfully, we we find it easier to maintain the discipline to preserve that fitness if the path to that fitness is and was difficult. If I had to work to get to a certain point where I feel better and feel healthier, I'll remember that work. And I'll, I'll be thankful for the work it took and the way being difficult. And I, I don't want to go down that path again, but... Any you know, the, the statement anything in life worth having is worth working for that that's not a biblical statement, but there's a thread of truth in that saying. But of even greater eternal consideration, Christ's sacrifice is meaningless if there's nothing to be denied, nothing to be given up. If we only preach and call people to salvation with the statements, just accept Christ. It's the easiest decision you can make. Just raise that hand. Just tell Jesus, yes, I want eternal life and I want to avoid hell. If we just make those statements, we preach a partial truth. If we preach half the gospel, it is a false gospel. If there is no punishment for sin, then there's no glory in the salvation from that punishment. There is no need to respond to the call to salvation if there's no danger Beloved, here Jesus is presenting a true dichotomy. This is truth that must be considered. There are no other gates. There are no other gates. There's a narrow gate that leads to a hard way. And there's a broad gate that leads to an easy way. And every person here, every person here is on one of those paths. There is no other path. Next point is two groups. I just mentioned every person here. We're all in one of two groups. Look back to the text in Matthew 7, and you'll notice that Jesus also describes two groups of people. Obviously, one group has taken the narrow, hard path, and the other group has taken the broad and easy path. The important thing that we should see here is that Jesus says, many take the broad and easy path, and few take the narrow and hard way. Why is this? Now, on the face of it, we can see that the wide and easy path is appealing. Ease comes with having room to operate. Even when driving, we like having wide lanes. We like having wide parking spaces. There's, for me, there's more room for error. Uh, we, we don't like being crowded. If a person has gone hiking in the mountains, the narrow, difficult path requires more care and more difficulty and more effort. Sometimes those paths are more rewarding. They lead to the harder parts and the more beautiful parts of a mountain. But similarly on these spiritual paths that Jesus describes here, we see that the group that responds to the call to discipleship, the group that responds to discipleship is few in number. Few find that gate to life everlasting. Few have embraced the faith that comes from regeneration by the Holy Spirit. Why did so many fail to find the narrow way, as the text says? As we sang in the hymn right before the message, how sweet and awful. Verse 2 and 3, I believe, says, While all our hearts and all our songs join to admire the feast, each of us cry with thankful tongues, Lord, why was I a guest? Why was I made to hear thy voice and enter while there is room, while thousands make a wretched choice and rather starve than come? Believer, be reminded, be reminded often of the goodness of God. He called you to this narrow and hard path of salvation. Marvel at his goodness for your regenerated heart and for giving you the faith to believe. Rejoice in awe that you responded to that call and that he atoned for your sins. So much deception happens in our heads because, as the scripture says, our hearts are deceitful. If we fail to see the truth that we need a savior, if we fail to see that we are sinful and that our sin makes us deserving of destruction, we will fail to look for, much less find, the narrow way of salvation. We will blithely go on our way to the broad opening and the easy way. If we fail to consider the import, the eternal importance of our earthly walk, if we take the attitude that today is not the end, There is a very long tomorrow. That's the attitude we should take, an eternal view of our life. But if we fail to consider the eternal import, then we may choose to ignore truth. We may choose deliberately to say, no, no, Tim, no, Jesus. There's no dichotomy. There's another way to Christ that will come up later. I can wait. I can wait to figure things out later. I can wait to make a decision then. But that is a fool's position. That is a dangerous belief. And it is one that will choose the wrong gate and path. Let me, warn, let me warn you that in failing to find the narrow gate of truth that leads to life, if a person fails to find that gate, this failure to find it does not in any way mean that Jesus is not telling the truth when he says there's two groups. Each person in this room is in one of these two groups today. There is no neutrality. You have either come to God by faith or you have not. You are either in the kingdom or you're outside the kingdom. You are either on the narrow, hard way or the wide and easy way. This is the second dichotomy, and this, too, is a true dichotomy that must be responded to. Finally, we see two destinations. We see two destinations. These gates... These paths, these groups of people that are on the path and the way, they lead to two destinations. And our text says very simply, one destination is life, and the other destination is destruction. If you've seen any of the running road races here in the Portland area that are held just about every other week or every month, these races are great because they help uh, motivate runners to train. They give people something to work towards. But at these events, there's typically a big inflatable gateway of sorts has a big sign on it that says start on the other side it typically says finish so picture that in your head and here today we actually have like a two-part gate it's kind of a gate that forks both of the signs over both parts of the gate though say life there's a narrow part that says life And there's a wide part that also says life, but only one of those signs is true. One part of this two-way entry is this little turnstile, this clicky-clacky turnstile that allows one person in. There's a sign over this part of the gate that says life. And in parentheses it says life more abundantly. This sign is true. The destination of this narrow gate and this difficult path that you can see ahead of you. The destination is life eternal Reconciliation with holy God, our creator. If we turn our attention to this side, this is a very wide, easy, inflatable archway that says, this way to life and peace and happiness. In only slightly smaller text, it says, no cost, no obligation, no judgment. Along one pillar, it might say, join as a family. Bring as much baggage as you want. On the other pillar, it may say, pathway rating, Easy. The signage on this gateway is false. Outside of the site of the start line is the real destination. It looks like it's downhill and paved and very nice and even. But the real destination is a place that the Bible calls hell. This is a literal place. This is a place of eternal never-ending fire that burns, and torment that does not ever give relief. We don't speak often of hell. It's not a popular topic, but it is real nonetheless, and it cannot be ignored. These two pathways have destinations. These two pathways don't just meander for all eternity and just never end anywhere, and we just enjoy the journey for the rest of eternity. The end of the easy broad path is hell where God eternally judges those who face him in their sinful states. This broad path is so wide that there are different lanes in it. There's a big one in the middle that's labeled all roads lead to God. And there's, it's crowded and people are wandering all the way around. But they're, they're generally heading on their path to destruction. They're seeking for fulfillment in the gods of their own creation. But notice off on the side there's also an, a smaller lane on this Broadway there's a smaller lane and it's 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 got lane markers that are painted with the word moralism the people in this lane are well dressed well behaved good neighbors upstanding citizens and they're walking in a very orderly fashion on this road within a broad path to destruction moralism as a means of salvation Is a path of devastation. It is a destructive hobby that ends up at the same place as those who do not believe that there's only one path to God. It is a destructive hobby. And yes, there are many on this wide path. This is hard truth. Part of me wishes that there were more choices. Part of me wishes that I didn't have to say in the kingdom or out of the kingdom. But this is, this is truth that Jesus presents to us, and we, we have to come to grips with it. Jesus presents to us a true dichotomy here of life and destruction. There are two inevitable ends to each person in this room. Each person in this room is an eternal being who will live forever. Everyone here will live forever. There is no third choice. There's no such thing as annihilation where the soul just stops being. Every person in this room will inevitably, and I am as sure of this about, as I am about anything I've ever preached, every person in this room will either end up with life or with destruction. This is the final, this is the third and final true dichotomy that Jesus preaches in these two verses in the Sermon on the Mount. And this, too, this truth must be responded to. Now, we live in a world where we don't like to have our choices limited, hence the popularity of buffets. We don't like to be restricted. I'm a person who has a lot of trouble making a purchase, a final purchase decision, if there's conditions of no return, all purchases are final. I know some people who don't like contracts of any kind. They have a lot of trouble with the two-year commitment on a cell phone plan. You know, we always want to know, is there another out if I don't like it? Is there a, a way out? Is there an alternative? That may be true in our minds. It may be true of our culture and our desires today. But Jesus clearly states in today's sermon, there there's no middle ground. I opened by talking about false dichotomies, as well as the falsity of saying there are many, many types of truth, and it's what you define. But this passage has shown us three sets of dichotomies. There's two gateways, there's two groups, and there's two destinations. Everyone here is on one side or another of those three dichotomies. It has been said that presenting the, gospel, presenting the gospel to a person places that person in an untenable position. That person must either respond to the gospel message, or that person will harden their hearts against the gospel message. There's no middle ground. There's no ambivalence. There's no whatever. That person must either respond to the gospel message or that person will harden themselves against the gospel message. This message today is an earnest call from Jesus Christ saying, follow me, join my kingdom as a disciple. For you today, if you are a believer, this is a call to examine your walk along the narrow and hard path. Are you looking over, over the hedges at that wide and easy path longingly? Do you desire to bring along the bags of, of uh, sin that you wish to keep in your life, of self-justification or self-condemnation? Are you resting in the arms of your Savior to hold you secure along the path? Are you working with the empowerment of the Spirit to grow in holiness, motivated not by the fear of not earning your salvation, but instead motivated by the joy of knowing your father more and more and walking in obedience with him. For you today who have not embraced God and his plan for reconciling you to himself, do you hear the call in your heart? When Jesus says, I am the door, I am the way, it's like you're on a path. Jesus lays himself down across the path. Beyond him is destruction and hell. You have to step over Jesus to get to the destruction that you want. You have to make a choice. You have to decide, I will not be turned. He's trying to block you from that path, and you must choose that destruction. Jesus calls for you today to follow him. Turn back from this path to destruction and follow Jesus on the path to life. I plead with you today. Do not set aside these two simple verses as fairy tales conjured up by weak-minded people who need a religious construct to get through life on earth. What person would come up with with this construct that says the path to life is the hard and difficult one that requires suffering and self-denial? Please do not choose. Please do not choose to. I need to come up with another word for choose. Please do not select the false option when there is no option. There is no third option. Jesus is very clear, and I've tried to be clear as I've led us through this passage. Jesus gives a loving warning. Follow me through the narrow gate into my kingdom as my disciples. If you don't follow me, you are headed for destruction. You can enter the kingdom through my saving work on the cross. You can do so by recognizing your need to repent from your sin. And placing your sole faith in my death on the cross and my resurrection from the tomb and the payment that I have made in that sacrifice for your sins, dear one, your eternal destination is in the balance. Please do not harden your heart further in unbelief. Respond to the Savior's call for repentance. A friend of mine that some of you know, Chris Merkel, is an elder at Community Baptist Church here in Hillsboro. He blogs occasionally on on different topics, but the title of his blog comes to mind as we close this message today. The title of his blog is Narrow Gate, Deep Grace. Narrow Gate, Deep Grace. Chris coined this phrase because it describes the wonderful love that God shows to us, even as Jesus tells us that the gate is narrow and the way is hard. Yes, the gate is narrow and few find it, but for those who do, that grace is flowing through that gate, and it is deep. Going back to the physics thing, if you have a very wide channel, say four foot wide and an inch deep, but you funnel that into a narrow gate, that water is going to start flowing hard and wonderfully deep. It is enough to cover our sins, this deep grace that runs through this gate. It is enough to cleanse us. It is enough to clothe us in righteousness so that when we stand before God, He sees the righteousness of Christ. And not our sin. It is enough to atone for our sins and to absorb the just and right punishment for our sins that we deserve. This grace is enough to take us to heaven when our time on earth here is done. If you have walked through this narrow gate, revel and be thankful for that deep grace. If you have not yet come through this narrow gate, throw yourself into that flowing deep grace and let God transform your heart as He gives you new life and life more abundant. Let's pray. Father, I pray that You would take these words, hide them behind the words of Your Son here in this passage. I pray that the uncomfortableness that we might have as people who seek multiple options and like to to work all angles that we would be uncomfortable with the two choices that your son has described. A narrow gate and a wide gate. We thank you for the simplicity of the message. We pray that you would speak to our hearts with the importance of dealing with the truth that we've heard. We pray that for believers we would be encouraged to see where you have brought us and how you are taking us to life. And we pray that on that path we would walk worthy of our calling. For our dear ones here that may be unbelievers now or may not be Christians, we pray that the enormity and the importance of these dichotomies, of the gateway and the path and the groups, that they would... Um, that Your Spirit would speak to their hearts, that You would give them eyes to see, that You would give them ears to hear, and that You would show them that their path to You is only through Your Son who laid down His life for them. I pray that You would work in hearts. I pray that You would encourage us and challenge us and wonderfully call people to salvation today. It's in Your Son's name that we pray, and it is in His work on the cross that we rest. Amen.